Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast, dear listener. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers, and I am joined tonight by... Farmer Phil. And we're just going over Brodeline Bridge in the car with a lovely bouquet in the back. And the whole verges are covered in cow parsley, and those florists have been picking it and <laughs> adding it to our bouquets. Isn't that nice? It looks great. And all the ferns are just unfurling their leaves as well. So the verge is a really good mix of that fresh new green colour and the white of the cow parsley flowers. And for those of you wondering what's going on at Wigglers this week, it's all mealworms. As far as I can see, there's mealworms going out everywhere. And that's because the fledglings are fledglingly fledglingy in their nests and they need live food and mealworms are a brilliant way of giving them lots of protein don't bother feeding dried well I think don't bother feeding dried compared to live because if you feed live there's a drink as well as uh, protein uh, have you seen any nesting nests? well I, I've seen a lot of nesting going on but I am pleased to report that the only fledglings I've seen are in your hen house <laughs> We've got brand new chicks. In fact, I gave them some mealworms this morning. Two little brand new chicks from one of our hens, which is a good job because we lost one of our hens the other week to the bad old fox. Right, it's time for a Montycast. A weekly fact about something. A Monty Compost Cast. A weekly fact on composting. If you have the room, two composters are better than one. While you are busy filling one composter, the second can be working away. When it's time to empty one, they can switch positions and start all over again. So anyway, we're in the car because we're going to the Space Guard Centre. Have you heard of it, Phil? I hadn't, no. Um, Not until you said we were going, there. Well, it's a working astronomical observatory. It's near Knighton. Uh, so just over the border in Mid Wales, it's on the top of a hill, and it has an observatory that offers huge views. It has a planetarium. How cool is that? I remember going to the planetarium when I was a kid at Madame Tussauds. Mm, I think I, I went to the, the planetarium in London, but I also went to, and I don't know what they're called, when you have a big magnifying glass on the roof of the building and it projects the stars onto a big white dish in front of you. And oh. I went to one of those at Bristol. Very good. Anyway, this place is run by an enthusiastic absolute genius as far as I can see his name's Jay Tate and the thing that this place does it's not interested in constellations it's not interested in studying stars it's not interested in much except let me read it to you find out about the danger of comets and asteroids hitting the earth and what we can do to protect ourselves This chap has set up this centre in 1996 and it's an information node for those concerned with near-Earth objects and the threat they pose to life on Earth. It moved its headquarters to Wales and since then the Space Guard Centre has become the International Space Guard Information Centre and it is the hub of the Comet and Asteroid Information Network. 
and they work closely, listen to this, with all sorts of astronomical organisations worldwide, including ESA and NASA. They have um, several telescopes, as I said, a planetarium, and they also have a collection of meteorites and a robotic telescope. And Jay is absolutely obsessed with tracking asteroids, which he can do, and he believes that it's our biggest threat to mankind and he can track them and if he only had enough telescopic power he could give the world a hundred years warning on the fact that we're going to be whacked. And it is interesting given the, the damage that a large snowball could do to us if it hit us and that is what a comet is, is a snowball and we are being potentially snowballed from outer space. <laughs> and that if we are hit by a big enough snowball that is travelling fast enough, ultimately it could wipe us out, right down to a, a minor blip on the outer surface of the atmosphere. And in between, we have the potential to have a hole in the ground um, up to any size you like, really, isn't it? Anyway, we're going to find out more when we meet Jay. We're nearly there now. And one of the questions that I can't wait to ask him is what does he think of global warming? Because I have a feeling that this chap's view isn't perhaps the convention, as this chap is definitely not a conventional chap. Uh, no. So we're climbing to the top of the hill and on top of the hill I can see a telescope. It's like a little silvery outpost. We know we're up in the air because the sheep have got shorter <laughs> and woollier and they look as if they run around a lot and the fields have got bigger and the grass is more varied. There's fantastic bluebells, red campion, all sorts. So we're about to see the Space Guard Centre at Knighton. So we'll go in and, uh, well, you can join us in a few highlights of the talk. I won't be able to talk in between the highlights because obviously I'm in the talk. But you'll be with us listening to Jay Tate tell us what's what. Okay, so we're going to squeeze in the best way. Right, this is a model of the solar system. So we've got the Earth here, bimbling around once every 365 and a quarter days. But if you go closer to the Sun, the planets in there don't have to go so far to get round, so they get round in less time. All the way into Mercury here, which whistles round in just 88 days. So a year on Mercury is just 88 Earth days long. At the other extreme over there, we've got Neptune, the dark blue one, and he's so far away takes them 165 years to get round. But this is pretty much the way we've all been taught to look at the solar system, ever since Isaac Newton told us that the whole thing was like a great big machine, mechanical, predictable, peaceful, where nothing ever changes. But then along came people like Darwin, Lyle, Hutton, who told us that actually things do change. But they only change very gradually over millions and millions of years. And there was born the concept of gradualism, gradual change. 
any concept that big bad things can happen and change everything was simply brushed away. Our distant ancestors were regarded as morons for thinking that such things could happen. But then in the last century we went into space and when we had a close look at these other planets we began to realise that perhaps the old guys weren't quite as wrong as we thought and perhaps that long, slow, gentle evolutionary process biological and geological might not be quite the way it happens. The best way to show that really is back through here. As your eyes get used to the dark, you should begin to see a little bit on the inside of the dome. Now, you won't see an awful lot to start with, because obviously it does take a few minutes for your eyes to adjust. Now, the normal trick in a planetarium is to have a quick spin round all the different patterns of stars, constellations, that sort of thing. So we try to avoid that if we can, not because we don't like constellations, of course. They're pretty things. And they do make an awfully useful little map to help you find your way around the sky. But in reality, of course, they're just imaginary dot-to-dot pictures in the sky. Clearly they don't mean anything. So for what we're doing, they're not terribly relevant. As I said outside, the focus here is on planets. That brings me back to the question of how do you make a planet? It turns out, though, that if you want to know how planets are made, the first thing we've got to do is have a very quick look at how stars are made. Because making planets is really just part of the process of making stars. In fact, really, the planets are just the leftover bits once you've made a star. If you want to know how stars are made, you need to know where they're being made. Now, that's fairly straightforward because stars are being made all over the place. But there is one spot that's relatively close to us. The famous constellation of Orion, precisely. But in the middle of Orion, we've got three little stars in a row just here that make up Orion's belt. And then, hanging from his belt, he has a sword. And that's this line of very faint stars down here. But it's fairly close to the bottom of the sword, where we find exactly what we're looking for. Now, if you look at that patch of sky on a nice, clear winter's night you'll find something that looks rather like a little fuzzy star. But if you look at that little fuzzy star through a large telescope, what you'll actually find there is this, the Orion Nebula. Now, nebula is just the Latin word for cloud, and that's precisely what this is. An enormous cloud of dust and gas, mainly hydrogen gas. Now, it is quite big. A beam of light takes about eight minutes to travel from the sun to the earth. But across this cloud, from edge to edge, it would take that beam of light just over 23 years. And it's quite a long way away. To reach us here, that beam of light would have to travel for about 1,300 years. But this thing's close enough to have a good look at what's happening in the middle. And if you look in the middle of the cloud, you can see that it's glowing. And it's glowing because it's enormously hot. And it's hot because this is where new stars are being made. About 700 of them at the moment. And they're being made in there for a very simple reason. If you look at this end of the cloud up here, you can see it's quite lumpy. And these are lumps where the dust and the gas 
are just a little bit thicker, denser than the rest. But because of their own gravity, these lumps begin to shrink. And as they get smaller and smaller, the gas in the middle gets squeezed. But if you put gas under pressure, it gets hot. So as these lumps get smaller and smaller, they're getting hotter and hotter. And they keep on getting smaller. They keep on getting hotter. Until the temperature in the middle reaches about 11 million degrees centigrade. And at that temperature, hydrogen begins to burn. Now obviously it's not ordinary burning. This is nuclear. Nuclear fusion. It's exactly the same reaction you get in a hydrogen bomb. But the moment that kicks in, our lump of gas and dust suddenly switches on, just like a light bulb, as a new star. So a star is really nothing more than an enormous ball of gas with this nuclear furnace burning away in the middle. And that's about as hard as it gets. So liquid water simply can't exist in open space. So the solid ice turns straight to gas. It sublimes, just misses out the liquid bit altogether. But when that happens in one of these, it's rather like trying to blow up a balloon. The pressure on the inside of the skin builds up until eventually, where it's weak, the skin cracks. And when it cracks, you get little jets of stuff coming out the comet. Gravel, dust, gas. Now some of that falls back down. That helps to thicken up the skin but most of it forms a colossal cloud right round the whole comet. And when all of that gets even closer to the sun, then the solar wind and radiation pressure begin to blow that cloud away. And that's what forms the comet tail. Yep, so the comet's tail is actually being blown away by the sun. That's why it always points directly away from the sun. It's got nothing at all to do with the direction the comet's moving in. But by looking at the tail, you can learn a huge amount about what comets are made of using a technique called spectroscopy. You can also deduce from that tail that comets are unbelievably grubby things. Wherever a comet goes, it's spitting out dirt and dust. And over time, that stuff all spreads out along the comet's orbit around the sun. But every now and again, as the Earth whistles around the sun, we go through one of those trails of dirt. And when we do, we get a meteor shower. Okay, so your average shooting star is a little piece of comet burning up in the upper atmosphere. Right? They're normally about the size of a grain of sand, and they're burning up 30 or 40 kilometers above the ground. So shooting stars are totally harmless. The fun starts when one of these, or an asteroid, in its entirety hits a planet. In that case, it's all down to how heavy the object is, its mass, and how fast it's going. Velocity. Surprisingly, what the object's made of is completely and utterly irrelevant. couldn't matter less. Purely mass and velocity. Now, the little bits are no problem at all. They simply come whistling in, hit the top of the atmosphere, and the air resistance slows them right down. They'll either burn up or break up. Any bits left over simply drop down to the ground. But if you're big enough and fast enough, then the atmosphere doesn't have time to slow you down. So the big fellas hit the ground at about the same speed as they were travelling through space. Now, with asteroids, you'd be looking at a speed of somewhere between 15 and 20 kilometers per second, 38 to 45,000 miles an hour. Comets, on the other hand, can be three or four times as fast as that. Now, when a thing like that hits the ground, obviously it doesn't stop. 
it's like firing a bullet into the ground. It'll just keep on going until the ground physically stops it. But on the way through the ground, this thing's been crushed, it's been compressed, friction kicks in, we've got shock waves bouncing around inside it and in front of it. In fact, really, all it wants to do is blow itself to gas. But it can't. Because as it punches through the ground, its back end squeezes its front end into the rock ahead. So the pressure holds the whole thing together until it stops. Now, when it stops, there's no pressure. So when it stops, our asteroidal comet and the rock surrounding it simply blow themselves to gas. So what you get is a nice big explosion just under the ground, which blows a big hole in the ground, and it's that hole that you see as the crater. And incidentally, that's why all meteorite craters are perfect circles. Until quite recently, people thought that if something came in at an angle, you'd get an oval-shaped hole. But actually, of course, it doesn't matter what angle it comes in at, because it hits, it keeps on going, it stops, and then it blows. Always a round hole. And it's quite useful to find them as well, because to do this sort of damage, to hit the ground fast enough, you're going to need quite a big meteorite. You're going to need a rock about 150 metres across. I think football stadium size. So, we've got a football stadium-sized rock hitting the ground at 40,000 miles an hour. Now, that's going to blow quite a sizeable hole. As a general rule, your crater is about 20 times the size of the thing that did it. So here, we blow a hole about three kilometres across. The heat and the blast from the explosion would take out an area about the size of Shropshire. I normally say Herefordshire, but in deference to where you come from, let's say Shropshire. Now, that would be total. That would be at level four, no survivors, probably in about 20 to 30 seconds. But, of course, the effects spread. That would be a country-wide issue. But if it's only country-wide, of course, it's fairly local. It's easily recoverable because people from the outside can come in and fix everything. It's when we get a global problem that things are a bit tricky. And to do that, you need a rock about one kilometre across, two-thirds of a mile blowing a 20-kilometre-sized crater, the immediate area of destruction would be about the same size as France. But this time, the effects are global. And if it's global, there's nobody on the outside to come in and fix anything. So while it's not a mass extinction, we're way below that threshold, the major casualty will be the infrastructure, all the clever stuff that keeps our technology-based civilization ticking over. That will fail. So the survivors are going to have to muddle through without power, communications, transport, central authority. In effect, they just slip back into the Middle Ages. And then recover. No reason why they shouldn't. The planet recovers very quickly. Less than a decade, everything's pretty much back to normal again. So that's recoverable. What isn't recoverable, of course, are mass extinctions. To do that, you need a rock bigger than about five kilometres across. And from then on, all you have to do is ratchet up the size of the rock and the extent of the mass extinction. Until eventually, we've got something that's big enough and fast enough to dump enough kinetic energy on impact to boil off the oceans and melt the crust. In which case, of course, you simply sterilise the entire planet. So we've actually got quite a big toy box to play with in this game. We've got pretty shooting stars all the way up to sterilising planets. And, of course, we know it happens. No doubt about that one. If in any doubt, get a pair of binoculars out next time the moon's up. Well, 
where does an impact get big enough to actually move the Earth or to disturb its orbit? Anything moves the Earth, but it depends, you know, how close you want to measure it. To noticeably move the Earth, you're going to be looking at something 100, maybe 200 kilometres across. We won't be around to worry about that. No. As you worry about this huge picture and you talk in millions of years, do you worry about climate change or global warming? Not in the slightest, no. It's perfectly natural. It happens all the time. It's happened throughout history. Big deal. You know, we just happen to be on the bum end of it, that's all. The point now, though, is, of course, how often does this sort of thing happen? Uh, And luckily, of course, it's not very often. But we can find out now because we can find out how often it's happened before. We can identify craters and we can date them. If you look at the craters, the first thing is that we really don't seem to have that many of them. And that's simply because we've not been looking for them. The ones that we have got, though, seem to be clustered. Uh, We've got a big bunch here, a bunch up here, and a bunch over here. And that's because these are the places where people have looked for them. This is one individual's work here, Gene Shoemaker. That's the University of Uppsala, and that's that lot. Yeah. It's a pretty biased view at the moment, and of course we've got an enormous natural bias because of the sea. Two-thirds of the Earth's covered by it, two-thirds of these jokers are going to fall into it. Now, an impact at sea can be a lot, lot worse than one on the land, but it doesn't leave behind any permanent marker. So we probably lost 65 or 70% of the sample. The other problem here is the atmosphere. That's a damn nuisance because it stops the little bits punching through fast enough to blow craters. So in theory, we've got no sample of those. But some of the little ones do make it quite a long way down. That's what these little yellow stars are. These are little ones that come ploughing in, but they actually pop in the atmosphere before they hit the ground. The ones I've marked on here are all quite big and relatively recent. If these things are big enough, they have all the symptoms of a nuclear weapon. Less for the radiation, of course. So they're picked up by United States Air Force satellites. But the most famous airburst actually is this one up here, the famous Tunguska event. Back on the 30th of June, 1908, a little lump of dirty ice, probably about the size of a tennis court, came whistling in in this direction, and just over the Tungus, it popped. Five miles above the ground when it blew, but the explosion was about a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Now, a 15 megaton airburst took out an area about the size of Leicestershire, completely shredded the forest underneath. Luckily, as far as we know, there wasn't anybody there. But there are still one or two quite important lessons there. First and foremost, in less than a century, nearly all the evidence for that had gone. If you go there now, unless you really know what you're looking for, you'd have no idea that anything had ever happened. We were there six or seven years ago, and even from a helicopter, there's nothing to see. So if that hadn't been witnessed and reported, we'd actually know nothing about it at all. But of course, when it happened, the damage was huge. If that had happened over a populated area, not a good day. The other thing the atmosphere does here, though, is it wipes away all the evidence. Wind, rain, erosion, all those weathering processes. So, frankly, if you want to count craters, this is about the last place you want to do it. It's about as bad as it gets. So, we don't. We don't have to. As we said before, we've got the next-door neighbour. Now, on the moon, of course, you've got no atmosphere to worry about. So even the little ones are going to punch through and blow little holes. And when you blow a hole on the moon... There's nothing there to wipe it away again. So what we've got here is a near-perfect record of the cratering rate in our bit of space for the last three billion years. And based on that, 
we'd come up with a fairly robust frequency table that tells us how often the Earth gets hit by different sizes of objects. We mentioned a one-kilometre-size object that does global damage. Well, the Earth gets hit by those, on average, about ten times every million years. Not, of course, every hundred thousand years. Totally random, but that's the average. For Tunguska-sized objects, we expect those once or twice every century. So statistically, every 50 to 100 years, we pop the equivalent of a large nuclear weapon at random somewhere over the planet. Two-thirds over the sea, of course. No problem there at all. But it certainly doesn't take the brain of an archbishop to work out. It might not be long before we do it over a populated area. Now, once we'd realised just how much damage these things can do and how relatively frequent they are, we began to look for ways of stopping this happening. And that actually turns out to be remarkably simple to do. The first bit of the process, of course, is to find any potentially dangerous comets and asteroids as long as possible before they become a real crisis. So we clearly need a search programme. And that's the easy bit. That's down here. Phil, what about that? If you, oh, that was unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know whether what, I'm scared or excited. To meet someone so enthusiastic is fantastic, but I tell you what, he made short work of your question on global warming, didn't he? Yeah, he did, actually. If you want to find out more about the Space Guard Centre or even visit, they're open most days, but you can go to www.spaceguarduk.com and wow, I had no idea. That such an amazing place was so near to Herefordshire. They also rely considerably on private funding and currently they've been given this whizzy bang camera that was unable to be used from Cambridge because there was too much light pollution and they're currently raising money to build the correct shed and machinery to put this camera in so that they can get even better pictures of comets, asteroids and any other detritus that might be heading our way. So if you investigate Operation Drax, they will be very grateful to you. And for those of you who aren't listening in the UK, the Space Guard Centre is linked via the internet to three huge robotic telescopes. The Liverpool Telescope, and that's the John Moores University, on La Palma operated by the National Schools Observatory and the Falks Telescopes in Hawaii and Australia. So there we are, the Space Guard Centre, just above Prestine, uh, near Tonighton. Bye from us, from Wiggly Wigglers. Until next week, hope you have a wonderful time. Bye. Bye from me. Well, that's a very good question because it is so raving dry now that my I... potatoes aren't up. No, well, though some of them are. The ones... Yeah, but they're the ones that are from last year. Well, they are. But Terry Walton was asked a question: that if you've got a few volunteers from last year, is it any good if you leave them there? And he said 
that you always get a really good crop from volunteers so that for one year it's all right to leave them there. So I ridge them up and they're looking well. So when are you supposed to water them? Well, apparently you're not supposed to water potatoes until you get to the point that they're at tuber initiation, so when they're setting their little tiny potatoes, and then you can start watering them, and that will reduce the incidence of scab. So in my world, is that when there's plenty of leaf above the ground? Yes. Yeah. They've got enough go in the actual seed potato to get cracking and to form the plant but once they start initiating their tubers then you can use the watering to help your disease control i tell you what if you've got any chance of harvesting any compost at the moment stick it on your garden because it's a wonderful way of holding water and so is bokashi so if you've got any buckets of bokashi and you think your place is too dry now add it because that will act as a mulch and it will retain the water in the ground and incidentally always 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 water really early in the morning or late at night so that it doesn't all evaporate away because there's no water about she said just seeing the first drop of rain on the windscreen for a month it's eight percent in monmouthshire of the rain that it normally is it is raving dry, and, and in the eastern side of the country, they are in desert-like conditions over there, and their crops are really suffering.